Welcome to In Orbit, the podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world. Brought to you by the Satellite Applications Catapult. I'm your host, Maggie Adairin-Pocock, and in this series, we'll be discussing some of the incredible and unexpected ways the UK is using space to make huge differences to life on Earth as well as taking a look forward to some of the amazing innovations we can expect for the future. For the final episode of this season, I'll be exploring what it means to manufacture in space and what the future could hold for us if we move towards utilising those possibilities for Earth. I'm joined by Mike Curtis-Rouse, Head of Manufacturing for Space at the Catapult. Elizabeth Seward, Senior Strategist for space systems at Airbus. Lisa Desner, Human and Robotic Exploration at the European Space Agency. And Josh Wesner, CEO and co-founder at Spaceforge. To many people, the concept of being able to make things in space will sound like something straight out of a science fiction movie. But the truth is, a lot more happens up there than we might realise. Take the International Space Station, for example. It has been in orbit for just over two decades and is a hive of activity, home to numerous experiments that can't be done on Earth. But are we using space enough? Space tourism is often in the headlines, as companies such as SpaceX, Virgin Galactic and others compete to lead in this emerging market. However, the opportunities that are being unveiled in manufacturing could be the thing that has the most significant impact and benefit to planet Earth. As we explore different ways to achieve net zero and push to become a more green society, we cannot deny the fact that increasing demand being placed on manufacturing is part of what's causing the most damage. Could using space to its maximum potential be the key to saving the planet? Founded in 2018, Spaceforge is one of the companies leading the way in finding solutions to some of Earth's environmental issues through the utilisation of space. Josh, as the CEO and co-founder, and someone who's very passionate about finding ways towards a clean industrial revolution, what would you say are some of the barriers we're up against when it comes to how we're currently manufacturing on Earth? The crux of of the proposition is on Earth we're becoming limited by the nature of the planet to manufacture new things. So we're nearing the theoretical capacity in, in physics, basically. And that's primarily achieved by the fact we have a a wet, heavy atmosphere and gravity. But by going to space, you can remove the two major obstacles to producing anything. And so if you look at things like electronics or alloys, composites, basically anything that's kind of a buzzword, all of them are at their maximum. So like the computer, for example, we took a computer core as far as it could go. So to get around the problem, we just started adding more cores. So you could get a dual core computer and then a quad core computer. And now you've got like quad core in your phone, but through Amazon Web Services, you can access like 98 cores in one go. It's because they took that technology as far as they could go, so they had to work around it. But if you move that kind of production process to space, then you don't have that problem. 
So you can create materials which are essentially double the efficiency that you can currently produce on Earth. So, not only do we have to consider the continued impact of manufacturing on our environment, we could also be reaching the limit of what can actually be achieved in terms of technological advances due to the conditions on Earth. But manufacturing in space for life on Earth presents its own set of challenges. There are separate issues to consider when it comes to making things in space for space, especially large structures. If the goal is to explore more commercial opportunities, then we need to find ways of carrying out large-scale projects much more efficiently. Mike, as Head of Manufacturing for Space at the Catapult, what would you say are some of the current constraints that we're faced with? So if we want to build a larger structure in space, everyone's broadly familiar with the International Space Station. The International Space Station is basically a giant set of Lego, but that Lego had to fit in the launch bays of both the Space Shuttle when it was in operation and other launch vehicles, Atlas launchers, European Ariane 5 launcher and a variety of other flavours. So you can only build effectively structures which fit in those launch bays. And those launch bays, while they're big, in some cases you can fit almost a double-decker bus in some of them, they're not actually that huge. So that gives you huge amounts of constraints in terms of what you can build. If you use an analogy of effectively trying to build a house, consider that in order to build the house, you could only have each brick delivered one at a time. It would take you a very, very long time to build that house. Likewise, if you then have something complicated like a front door, if your front door isn't the same size as a household brick, you have to break your front door down into effectively sizes equivalent to a household brick in order to build the door. Now, clearly for a one-off special build, that works. But when you're trying to build and commercialize something, that clearly doesn't work. You're not going to build an entire housing estate delivering your front door in a thousand pieces for every single house. It makes no sense. So what do you do? You have a bigger vehicle. That's one way around it. However, as probably most people listening to this know, there are a variety of different launch vehicles we can get into space. There's lots of new launchers operating from the ubiquitous SpaceX right across to companies like Skyora and PLD Aerospace who are real newcomers to the market, but they still have all the same constraints. You can only put so much on top of a rocket. The process of getting things up to space can be costly and extremely complex. One of the institutions that are looking at in-space manufacturing to drive innovation is the European Space Agency. Now, Lisa, you have a rich history when it comes to working on innovation, and your role as Innovation Officer at ESA puts you right in the heart of solving some of these problems. What challenges and limitations do you see when it comes to developing and sending innovative new technologies and platforms into space? If you consider how we launch something, essentially we, we put things in a box, we put that box on a rocket, and then we propel this rocket to an incredible speed. So it's quite a harsh procedure for everything in there to, to, to undergo. So that means that things that have to fit into the box, I mean, box is very simplified, but you really have to over-design whatever you want to launch. You cannot just build it and bring it up. You need to come up with an extremely smart way to fold things. You also have to have a good idea of how it will automatically unfold itself once it is in space. If anything goes wrong, it will be almost impossible to fix it, which adds a lot of additional complexity to the project, makes it more expensive, more long-term, makes qualification harder, because you cannot just go and repair, at least not currently. The journey of items from Earth to space is another challenge for getting things up there, as they need to be robust enough to survive the trip. Elizabeth, 
you're the senior strategist for space systems at Airbus. How are the actual journeys into space creating obstacles? The ride itself is not very comfortable. So if you've ever seen a rocket launch, you can hear the really loud noise and see just how much it shakes and vibrates. So everything we build has to be small, compact, and has to survive these very strong vibrations before we get it into space. And that's the major limitation in what we can send at the minute. As humans, we're doing a lot in space. But our presence up there is minuscule compared to how vast it is. We have room to branch out and utilise it for various sectors. But beyond priority missions and experiments, gaining access to space isn't easy. Now, Josh, at Spaceforge, you're working on something that will help open this up a bit. Can you tell us more about that? The way to access space is developed. We have rockets. The things that can function in space are available because you have satellites. But there's no way to actually return something viably without waiting on the ISS. So you get maybe four chances a year to return from the ISS and because you're not an astronaut or an astronaut's experiment or whatever, you are at the bottom of the list. So you might not even get on if it's too full. And so that's why we developed the Forge Star platform, or I should say are developing. It's not ready yet. Hopefully its first flight will be at the end of 2021 if a rocket's available. And what that is, is a standalone platform. The first one is about the size of a shoebox. In the space industry, it's known as a CubeSat, and that will be a self-contained factory. It will produce next-generation electronics, and then at the end of its mission, we will bring it home. And to do that, we we have a, a return technology, which is kind of like the evolution of the space shuttle. It, you know, it makes sure that the heat gets away from the things you're trying to protect. And this would be the first ever return of a satellite globally. I think I'm right in saying that because other things have come back from space like the Soyuz and Dragon cargo and things, but this would be the first actual return of a full platform, which would be quite something. So how will adapting this process help in the long run compared with how we use satellites and rockets today? The objective is twofold. One is, well, you need to bring the product back anyway. So why would you have a system in space? Because that makes it way more complex if you've got to maintain something permanently up there. And the second is, okay, well, we're now entering reusable rockets. Why would you not then take the step in reusing satellites as well? If you think about it like a car, if you designed a car that you couldn't repair or refuel after it rolled off the production line, it would not look like how it looks now. And that's unfortunately why satellites look the way they look. But if you were able to bring it back at the end of life or you were able to do like a refueling mechanism or something like other people are proposing to do in space, but if you were able to replace the hardware that had broken and send it back up again, then why would you not? Because it massively reduces costs and development times and all sorts of things. And so our ambition is to enable a reusable factory in space. And that's what we're doing. It can be said that we take a lot for granted when it comes to things we use in our everyday lives. We tend to give little thought to how things are created as long as they work well. But imagine working somewhere like the International Space Station and you encounter a piece of equipment that needs fixing. There are limitations to what you can bring with you and even more limitations when it comes to accessing things from Earth in a timely manner. 
you need onboard solutions. So Elizabeth, could 3D printing be part of this solution? We're looking at 3D printing uh, and how can we manufacture things from scratch in space? So there's a 3D printer on the space station, which is building spare parts out of a polymer, uh, a plastic, um, as they're needed. This means that the space station doesn't have to ship a lot of spare parts in case they need them. They can make some of them when they're there. And at Airbus, we're actually developing the first 3D printer that will work with metals in space. Some of the advances that have needed to happen for us to consider these projects are around automation and having robotic ways of building structures. There is a robotic arm on the space station that has helped put it together, but it's very large and it is very unique. And so we're looking at how can we do this in a much smaller scale and reliably and without breaking? Because when we put some of these things into orbit, it's very hard to get to them for people to fix them. So we need to be able to do things robotically. We need to be able to do things automatically so that you can repeat a process if you want to build a very big, large scale structure. Or on the smaller level, things like 3D printing. 3D printers have been around for a very long time and we've used them in the engineering industry to make models of aircraft, for instance, to put in wind tunnels. But the machines were huge. And so actually it's the miniaturization of that technology that means we can now look at putting them in space. We can do things with much, much smaller machines so that we can harness those manufacturing methods to do something in space. Mike. What are your thoughts on the future of making things in space? I mean, arguably, if you're making something on the space station, technically that's space manufactured. So you can include that, for example, of the Italian espresso machine, which is on the space station. So you could argue that space manufactured lattes. I think milk cloning is probably more problematic than it sounds on Earth. But at the same time, there's also effectively a machine to make bread now. By making bread in space, is that actually space bread? Well, probably, arguably, yes, it is. And if you want to draw that out to an extent, the other activities are, for example, growing plants and things like that. So manufacturing a product doesn't explicitly have to be things which are effectively non-organic. Manufacturing a product can be pharmaceutical, it can be foodstuffs, it can be liquids, it can be materials. And ultimately, if we are to become, which many people use a grandiose title of, a space-faring civilization, then we have to get used to doing a whole variety of operations. And that's everything from deep space mining for effectively extracting ice from asteroids across to growing food in space. So all of those activities are happening at a nascent scale, but they've all come from activities which have been proven over really since the, the mid-1960s. So there's a significant heritage there. So we could be moving towards a future where space isn't just an option for manufacturing for Earth, but a necessity and a key to our survival. But what does the process actually look like, Lisa? I think in theory, manufacturing in space actually does work just like it works on Earth. You develop a facility and the facility takes resources as an input and then produces something more valuable as an output. The space environment is very different from Earth and we can produce things there that we couldn't otherwise produce on Earth. The key factor here is gravity. So if we take this out of the equation, things are actually getting quite exciting. For example, if you want to grow something on Earth, whatever it is that you're growing, it will be growing against the force of gravity. Things are pulled down and we see sedimentation effects. In space, nothing is obstructing the growth and therefore things can grow faster, more uniform and also more precisely in many cases. 
We also don't see what we call phase separation in space, which means if you would mix oil and water, they wouldn't divide themselves into oil and water. Do you think there'd be enough demand? What are the main things that would need to be considered to make it viable? What's interesting about this is that there is also different business cases behind this. So because if you are producing something in space that's relevant for Earth, you have actually a large group of potential customers, for example, patients waiting for new organs or drugs, companies looking to improve products, people wanting faster internet with using better fiber optics. So you have a large market, actually, that you could potentially serve. For use cases, there is an important factor that we need to take into account generally, which is mass and volume. So for whatever you're producing in space and returning to Earth, you need to think about how heavy is this and uh, what is it going to cost to bring it back and how does that relate to the value that I can sell it for. So I would say if you want to produce something in space right now and return it to Earth, in principle, your goal is to produce something that is ideally really small and lightweight, but at the same time very valuable because that's kind of the success formula to really being able to bring things up, have them edit with their value and then bring them down and still being profitable. And fiber optics is a great example for that because you can produce higher quality in the uh, microgravity environment because you don't have this phase separation. The crystals grow much better than you have much better performance and you can return this to earth and it weighs really little, especially in ratio to what it's worth. So we've been doing things in space for a long time. The Space Shuttle was in operation for 20 years. The space station has been occupied for 25 years. Actually, none of these activities are that new. And the Space Shuttle and on the space station, and in early iterations, including the Russian space station Mir, the American space station Skylab, there have been experiments going on in a variety of ways of trying to make different materials. Everything from, can we make highly spherical ball bearings? Well, we used to make those on Earth. Actually, we used to make them by using a technology which was designed to make musket balls by having drop towers where you take lead up um, a couple of hundred feet, drop it through the air, and it spheroidizes into a perfect sphere. And that's great for muskets. Technology moved on from there, but it was also used to make ball bearings. And in the same way, the microgravity environment in space allows you to make highly spheroidized materials. So NASA put quite a lot of work into basically looking at ways of developing new materials, new sterilization of, as I said, ball bearings and other structures. Earlier in the series, we looked at how ubiquitous connectivity will benefit the healthcare system and other infrastructures. What impact can we expect from having more access to space for experiments and manufacturing? This is quite influential if you're trying to grow, for example, cells, tissue or protein crystals and can have a tremendous impact if you are looking on biotechnology, pharmaceutical industries, if you're thinking tissue engineering, organ printing, drug development and their like. Then in space, you also don't have air particles because you have vacuum. That means heat can only travel through radiation and also means that you won't find convection and conduction in the vacuum of space. And also this has quite a broad range of impacts on processes uh, relating to heat transfer, boiling, solidification, fire, combustion. And all of these are very essential to manufacturing also on Earth. So it really helps you to understand your processes better. So... This can also be game changer, not only to produce things in space, but also to do research and development using this environment. Because if you take your product up to space, you can study the materials and the processes. And 
it will provide you with a better understanding of how this actually works, also in terms of chemical and physical processes. And then you can essentially derive new models from that and use them on Earth to improve your product or even develop a new product potentially. As we work towards making space more accessible, is it possible that it could be seen as an extension to our existing economy? So we're currently looking at continuous growth of the economy. We call it LEO and Lunar Economy, which is the developing market of services, service providers and customers around the Earth and beyond. And we see ever more satellites coming up. We're looking at potentially commercial space stations, spacecraft. It's going to be ever more busy. And all of this will have to be built and also maintained. The issue here is that if something breaks, there's currently very limited capability for any repair. That means if your satellite breaks or malfunctions and you cannot troubleshoot with a software from ground, you will have to deorbit. That means you trash it and you build a new one and you have to launch that. So it's not really sustainable. It's a little bit like trashing your car when the radio is broken, buying a new one including the cost, the waiting, the effort. And uh, we hope that in the future we'll be able to actually provide kind of like servicing capabilities to fix, to repair things that are broken by providing, for example, spare parts. That's where the manufacturing comes in. And this would also then help to reduce number of launches because for every broken part, we don't need to launch a new spare part or a new satellite or a new spacecraft. And that would therefore also limit the amount of dead spacecraft orbiting Earth. Uh, I think many people might have heard about space debris, which is becoming an issue. And so we hope this would be a more sustainable approach and also increase lifetime of spacecraft. Space is vast. But do you think that the ISS will be the central location for future manufacturing capabilities in space? I think what we would start to see is an emergence of different bits of space being leveraged to do different things. So the ISS is a great place for research, but it's not a great place for production. So hopefully space force we fill that gap. And then I think we will start to see different pieces of infrastructure emerge, like axioms, space station, and then we will see other use cases for it emerge, especially as, as launch prices come down, you start to broaden the things you can suddenly do that are profitable. We've talked about things like fibre optic cables and advanced electronic components, but of course, space could be somewhere to experiment and improve on a wide range of products over time. What are some of the projects that have caught your eye? So I think we're starting to see more extensive material development, more extensive drug development. There's a Scottish company that sent whiskey into space and they demonstrated that basically microgravity made it age faster because you didn't need to turn the barrel or something like that to get it to mix properly. So you can make better tasting whiskey faster. Goodyear Tire sent a material into space to develop a new tire that was more fuel efficient. I think I heard about a Japanese company that sent up a new toothpaste to test like its fluoride composition or something like that. And, and they made a better toothpaste because of it. It's the, like, it hurts my head how many things there are that you could do in space that would lead to an improvement. And I, I think really what we will see in the next 10 years or so are those opportunities being considered far more seriously by companies and industries which are not part of the space sector. And my hope very much is that 
you know, people like ourselves and, and others will be able to provide that opportunity for them to realize those ambitions um, so that we start to see space leveraged as, I guess, almost as a workshop compared to how it's used now, which means that it becomes a cornerstone of Earth's industry. What about commercial opportunities, especially for small businesses? So, Elizabeth, at Airbus, you're doing some exciting things in this area, aren't you? So it's a really a, a new commercial area manufacturing in space. Going back to the International Space Station, parts of it are actually opening up for commercial use. So Airbus, my company, has a platform called Bartolomeo, which is uh, on the outside of the European Columbus science module. And Bartolomeo actually was the younger brother of Christopher Columbus. It allows access to the microgravity environment for small companies or research scientists and you get to use the, the benefit of Airbus to get you there. And it means that people can put something in microgravity. They can run experiments on the outside of the space station, in the vacuum of space or inside the space station. And then they can even get their samples returned back to Earth so that they can analyze them and see what's happened. We're seeing that it's a way that you know, big business can help the, the SME and smaller business community. And also it allows access to, to lots of people to get to do different and interesting research. The large scale manufacturing is still reliant on a sort of a need and a business case. So it's very much in its infancy, but there are lots of on the ground projects going on. And how might we build big structures? What kind of automation can we do? How do we make sure everything is space qualified and would work? And so there are again, interesting projects ongoing, but nothing has yet made it into space. As much as the plan is to open things up, there seems to be a gap that needs to be bridged between those in the industry and those outside it. The concept of utilising space might seem a bit daunting to those not involved in it every day. So what's been done to help with this? So space is pretty interesting. I mean, we've been utilising space in a variety of ways for, in a way, 60 plus years. The reality is, is now we can start to use space in different ways. And we're seeing companies coming from a variety of different sectors into it, automotive, maritime, other aerospace companies, pharmaceutic. But as you say, the question is, is it can appear to be quite daunting. It's somewhere fundamentally where you're never going to go, or most people are probably never going to go, at least for 30 or 40 years. So what is the reality of how do you bridge that gap? And there are a whole variety of different initiatives coming from different organizations, including the Satellite Applications Catapult. We ourselves, for example, we host a series of webinars, we run seminars, we bring organizations together because actually facilitating connections and building collaboration with other organizations, academia, government, and other commercial organizations is actually part of the actual puzzle. If you can get that exposure and understand how organizations can work together and understand the precedence of an organization has worked in space, they've sent something to the space station for analysis or exposure to the space environment, then actually that starts to take away some of the fear and the concerns. At the same time as a catapult, we also run a business and design sprints where we bring organizations together, where we assess them using our technical skills. So individuals like myself with expertise in space manufacturing, other experts with experience in terms of the commercialization of space and understanding effectively how you market and how you exploit those capabilities. We get together with companies and we talk through the challenges. 
Finally, again, as a catapult, we have capabilities both at our Harwell campus and our Westcott campus, which are focused on developing testing, manufacturing and validation capabilities. But at the same time, many of the other catapults do the same. So organizations like the High Value Manufacturing Catapult can work with organizations to develop new products and products which are fit for deployment in space. We also see market stimulation and funding coming from both the UK and European space agencies, and that's to help companies bridge that gap understanding how do you operate in space, how do you put something in space, how do you get your data from space, and perhaps most importantly, how do you commercialise the output of that activity that you're doing in space. With every industrial revolution has come innovation that has shaped our world beyond what we could have imagined. And with access to space and opportunities for SMEs looking dramatically different in the next five to seven years, This could prove to be one of the most jaw-dropping revolutions yet. So Elizabeth, what are you most excited about? The bit I'm excited about is the the human exploration and the type of in-space manufacturing we need for that. So we built the, the International Space Station, but next step is to go back to the moon, to be in orbit around the moon, and then to have habitation modules, perhaps, for astronauts to visit the moon, to live on the moon, and then Mars is the step after that. And all of those, to be able to to have people living on the moon or on Mars will absolutely need to be manufactured in space and, and or on the surface. Lisa, much like we do on Earth... How can we best utilise resources available on these planets to support manufacturing and infrastructure? If we would build uh, infrastructure on the moon, the moon has uh, sand on its surface and we call this regolith. And we could use that to construct buildings and we could also extract oxygen from it. So there is oxygen saved, which we can extract and we could use this for life support systems. And if you mix oxygen with hydrogen, it could even be used as fuel so we could launch other rockets from the moon to go to Mars. So it's kind of becoming our second launch pad. And this whole process of using the resources that you find in your native environment, we call in situ resource utilization, ISRU. And this is really becoming a very up-to-date, very uh, vibrant topic. There's lots of research in this area, um, also in ESA. And I think this using what's already there is not only much more convenient, it's also more cost efficient and sustainable. And I think it's also the only way that we will be able to to travel elsewhere. So doing stuff on the moon is interesting. Doing stuff on Mars is interesting. You know, there's all sorts of interesting things you can do on those planets and learn. But it's the stuff in the middle which really gets interesting. So I think within 10 to 15 years, we will start to see initial probes going out to asteroids, near-Earth objects, to start conducting early mining operations. And we're not going to these asteroids. We don't want to go and find an asteroid made of gold, and we don't want to go and find an asteroid made of diamonds. That's not useful. That would cripple the world economy overnight. And actually, those materials don't really offer, actually, from a technical or manufacturing standpoint, much use, especially in space. What we really want to do is go and find an asteroid ideally made of iron and ice. Iron, because we can use steel in a whole variety of different contexts, from protection to shielding to structure, etc. Ice because we can convert ice into water, which is clearly imperative for human life. We can convert it into oxygen, and more importantly, we convert it into rocket fuel by splitting into its two components of oxygen and hydrogen. And of course, we can convert it into air. So there's a whole variety of things there we can do. And if we can find ice-based asteroids, and we know they exist, there are plenty of them, uh, billions realistically in the solar system, then we can start using that material to build in situ objects. And we would consider that in situ extraction. 
So we would deploy probes, probably robotic, to start doing in situ mining and extraction to build more structures, which then could be manned at a later date. And Josh, what does the future hold for Spaceforge? Where we would like to be is by 2025, we want to be launching a platform roughly once a month. I mean, 12 times a year, you know, whether or not we launch it actually once a month, it doesn't matter, which allows us to build enough of a cadence that we can start really disrupting markets and and opening them up so that it doesn't just belong to niche users. And then sort of before 2030, our return and payload or, or manufacturing architecture scales very easily. So the idea is to move up to larger platforms and adopt or become prime users of in-space infrastructure when it becomes available. So when somebody builds something like the space shuttle, primarily for, I don't know, conducting experiments or something, we would like to be somebody that would buy that space shuttle and then we would just turn it into a factory, have it up there for six months or whatever, bring it back down and, and then just keep doing that. So the I mean the markets we're going after, there is enough appetite in the market that we could even be looking at weekly, if not daily, launch by 2030 of our manufacturing platforms. Obviously, we've got some way to go to reach that. But that's really where we'd like to get to is roughly by 2030, doing a launch a week or perhaps even a platform return a week. Thank you to Mike Curtis-Rouse. Elizabeth Seward, Lisa Denzer and Josh Wesner for taking the time to talk to us about manufacturing in space and to the Satellite Applications Catapult for making it all possible. To hear future episodes of In Orbit, be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you want to find out more between episodes about how space is empowering industries, then visit the Catapult website or join them on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. Facebook.